Jesus didn't call it the golden rule, and yet that is how we have all come to know it. The origin of that title, perhaps, is found with the Roman Emperor Alexander Severus, who seemingly was so impressed by these words that he had them inscribed on the wall of his chamber in gold. Some contest that, suggest there's no truth to it. Regardless, I like the title. I like referring to this verse as the golden rule simply because it is a universally recognized, morally valuable law. It is universally recognized as being of great worth. The unbeliever recognizes the inherent worth to what Jesus says in verse 12. In fact, if you're in a DMV in Kentucky, apparently as you leave, the last words you read do as to other drivers what you would have them do unto you. <laughs> All other major religions have a form of this law inherent to them. The problem with texts that are as familiar as this one is that we can grow complacent with them. I pray that this verse would tower above us this morning. I pray that God would impress upon our hearts the truth of this verse, perhaps for the first time or anew, so that we would learn why it is so precious. That's the question I want to answer this morning. Why is the golden rule golden? I have four reasons. And I dare say if we were to ponder this text for a few more hours or days, we would come up with many more. This morning I have four reasons to give you as to why the so-called golden rule is so golden. It is a law for us to live by, beginning, number one, with the fact that it requires us to minister to the deepest need. The golden rule is precious because it requires us to minister to the deepest need. When Jesus says in verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, that raises a question. And the question is, what do you want others to do to you? How would you like other people to treat you? It's a harder question to answer than perhaps you think. Perhaps you don't know the answer to the question, at least not in all spheres of life, with every relationship. Or perhaps you have just some vague notion that you would like people to be nice to you. Theologically, the answer to that question is that our deepest, deepest desire is for others to love us. Theologically, the answer to the question of how you would like others to treat you is that you want other people to love you. That is true of everyone in this room without exception. I don't necessarily know your life story all of the influences that have shaped you to be the person that you are today, and yet I can say with confidence you desire for other people to love you. 
And that is not a bad desire. It is inherent to who you are as someone who is fashioned according to the likeness of God. The desire we have to be loved goes all the way back to chapter 1 of your Bible. In the very first chapter of Scripture, God makes humanity according to His image, His likeness. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, they are two distinct ideas, and it's important to understand the difference. To be made in the image of God speaks of our role, our job. We are His image bearers, that is to say, we are His representatives. Our job on earth is to be an image bearer, to represent God faithfully. But then he goes on, let us make them in our image according to our likeness. It's a subtly different thought which speaks of the fact that at some level we look like God. Theologians speak about the communicable attributes of God. God has many attributes, some of them he passed on to us. He communicated certain attributes to us, including the attribute of love. He made us with the ability, the capacity to give and to receive love. God gives and receives love perfectly. Our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from before the foundation of the world, God was loving within the Trinity perfectly, giving and receiving love without fault. He makes us according to His likeness, which includes that attribute of love, we desire to receive love. And then sin enters into the world in Genesis 3. And now not one of us gives love perfectly. And tragically, we are even at times afraid to receive love. It affects the way not only we give love, but how we receive it. But it does not change the desire. It doesn't change the inherent desire we have as those who are made according to the likeness of God to give and receive love. And I would say, in the midst of the reality of sin in our lives, that desire now is perhaps even more keenly felt. With sin everywhere abounding in our hearts and around us, we now deeply desire and we feel even more the desire to receive love from others. How do you want other people to treat you? You desire to be loved. Now, how does that feed into and shed light on what Jesus says in verse 12? It's important to acknowledge that the particular way in which each of us would like to receive love does differ. We are all wired differently. We can marvel at the fact that not any one of us is identical to any other person. And so there are preferential ways in which we like to receive love. One of the most important lessons I have learned in marriage is that I don't love my wife in the way that I would like to be loved. 
I love her in the way that she likes to be loved. I don't wake up, Laura, when it's still dark and say, I love you, we're going for a run together. <laughs> I let her get some rest. And when I do wake her, it's with flowers and a prepared breakfast. <laughs> I'm talking about in theory. <laughs> this is not a daily occurrence in the Twist home. You love people in the way they like to be loved and not in the way you like to be loved or even the way that you wish they would like to be loved. So Jesus is not talking about our preferential ways of receiving love. We know that because if he were, he would have to say it exactly the opposite to the way he did say it. Jesus said the way that you would like others to treat you, treat them. He's not here talking about the preferential differences that exist between us in terms of how we would like to receive love. Rather, if one of our deepest desires stems from the reality that we've been created in the likeness of God, then Jesus must be speaking about the kind of love which acknowledges our inherent worth and dignity as image bearers. If our desire to receive love comes from the truth that we all have been made according to the likeness of God, as Jesus here points us towards a life of love, he is speaking at a foundational level of a love that acknowledges every person as being created in the image of God according to his likeness. A foundational love that acknowledges the inherent worth and dignity of everyone who is set before us. How do you want others to treat you? The answer is, I desire to be loved as an image bearer, as one who has a worth and dignity because I've been made in God's likeness. This is perhaps inferred in the very first word of the verse when Jesus says, So, or therefore, again, should not surprise us, he's connecting this teaching with what has gone before. We've seen that week after week in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't give isolated teachings, but there's this intricate web, this logic that underpins all that he says. And here in verse 12, he begins, therefore. So that connects this thought with what went before. And as you remember last week, we considered the teaching that Jesus gives on prayer. And he says, God in heaven is a good, loving heavenly father who knows how to give good gifts. And one of the things I said was that if you pray and you do not receive, it might be because that which you're asking for is not actually good for you. God knows your heart. He knows his sovereign decree. And if he doesn't grant you the request that you have asked, it might be that you're asking for something which he has deemed to be not good. All that he does give you is good. And so then Jesus moves to the golden rule, beginning with an important therefore suggesting that our love for others should imitate, reflect God's love for us. God gives only good things. 
as we acknowledge the deepest desire inherent to all of us to receive love, we are responsible to give that love in such a way that accords with the truth of us being made according to the likeness of God. And so you see the golden rule before before it is a call to action. It's first and foremost a call to self-examination. Before we can be obedient to follow this teaching, we must first understand, who am I? Who has God made me to be? We must understand a biblical anthropology. What does this book say about humanity? Putting all preference issues to one side, what does this book teach me about how I am wired by a holy, sovereign God? That informs the way in which I desire to receive love. Now consider if you learn who you are before a holy God. If you learn what are the desires that sit the center of every human heart, just how profound a ministry you will have to others. Because verse 12 leads you in a ministry that speaks to the deepest needs of the human heart. Properly understood and applied and worked out in your life to the people whom God has placed before you, the golden rule leads you in a ministry that speaks to the deepest needs of the human heart. It renders you truly as an ambassador of Christ. And that's why the golden rule is so precious. Second reason, what's so valuable about this command, it demands that we honor God's holy character. It demands that we honor God's holy character. One of the greatest risks with familiar texts, not only is that we grow complacent with them, but as ever, we take them out of all context. We see how this text sits so central to Jesus' teaching, summing up the law and the prophets and indeed all that he said so far. And the danger is we tear it out of its context and in so doing, we can very quickly cause it to say something that it didn't originally say. Indeed, we could flip it entirely and cause it to say the exact opposite to what Jesus was teaching. One of the most common heresies affirmed daily in society today concerns God's love. If you look at the heresies that have marked church history over the last 2,000 years, many of them center on the person of Christ, his deity, his humanity. But there are other heresies, and one of the most common that is frequently affirmed outside of the church, concerns God's love. The Bible teaches, 1 John 2 and 4, that God is love. The Bible does not say that love is God. And there is a world of difference between the two. When the Bible says God is love, that teaches us that true Biblical love is fixed 
by God's character. It means God, who is in his essence love, shows us his love in accordance with all of his other attributes. You cannot lay aside another attribute so as to mold love to the way that you want it to be. When the Bible says God is love, we understand that that love is fixed by his holiness. The love of God runs on the rails of God's holiness. And it never departs from that, not one inch. Now, if you say, by contrast, love is God... You can define God however you want. More to the point, you can define love however you want. You can speak to anything that you determine is loving, lovely, full of love without any reference to the holiness of God and say, therein I see his face. Do not think that God is honored by all that we might call love. You can greatly dishonor God by calling certain acts loving. The most recent articulation of this heresy, at least on a large scale, was the free love movement of the 1960s. Perhaps the foremost example in recent decades a movement that readily laid claim to God, that would not be offended if you showed up speaking of your love for God, and yet then played out all kinds of activities that did not honor Him, saying that they were loving. If I was to go down into Thousand Oaks this afternoon and ask a hundred people, are you offended by the notion that God is a loving God? There is not one person that would object to that idea. But if I was to say, are you offended by the notion that God is a loving God whose love runs in accordance with his holiness, which means you cannot live your life the way you choose? Now everyone's offended. That's the difference between saying God is love and love is God. And so as Jesus in verse 12 pushes his disciples towards a life of love, it is so important to keep this verse within its broader context. It must be informed by the other teachings that Jesus has given in this sermon and indeed in Scripture. Last week, I told you that 7 through 11 brings to an end consequent sections of the sermon. And it does. That wasn't fake news. I meant it. At the same time, verse 12 brings the final, final conclusion to this larger section. Jesus does round off the sections in 7 through 11 with his teaching on prayer. And then he gives one final underscore with verse 12. And we see that through his use of the phrase, the law and the prophets, which echoes all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 17. He forms bookends with that statement. And so... 
as he teaches us to consider how we would like to be treated and then to treat others in like manner, it must be informed by everything that he said. Or if I can put it another way, everything Jesus has commanded us is an expression of his love. Jesus has been leading us in right living in the Christian ethic, which is at the same time an outworking of his love for us. I've said many times over, Jesus is not against you. He is for you. He wants your flourishing more than you want it. And as he gives these commands, he designs to love you. And so the answer to the question, how do I want to be treated, is perhaps more subtly put, I want people to love me the way Jesus loves me. What is it you want from those around you? The answer at the core of your being, irrespective of how much you may have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, the Bible shows us that at the core of your being, what you design, what you desire, is for people to love you the way Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus said, don't be angry. You want for people to love you in a way that they control their anger. You want people to love you in a manner that is peaceable. Jesus said, don't lust. You want people to love you such that they don't objectify you. You don't want to be an object for people's sexual desires. Jesus says, esteem marriage. You want for people to love you in such a way that they esteem your marriage. In such a way that they esteem their marriage in how they interact with you. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You desire to be loved as people tell the truth to you. You don't want people to lie to you. As hard as the truth may be, that is how you want for people to love you. Jesus says, don't retaliate. You want people to love you by forgiving you. When you make mistakes, when you offend, you want people to show love to you specifically by forgiving you. He said, love your enemies. You desire for people to love you even when you have wronged them. You desire not that they would retaliate, that they would seek to vindicate themselves, but that they would forgive and show you love even when you have wronged them. And the list goes on. So you can see chapter 7 verse 12 must not be reduced to some surface level command that simply in essence says be nice to people. That is not what Jesus was teaching. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to issue a tough love that confronts and challenges and corrects. Because that is what leads people in a way of honoring the Lord. Sometimes the most appropriate love, the most biblical love is a hard, felt love. It is not a command to be nice, but to lead people in a way that honors God's holy character. 
Now understand, if you are to love other people in this way, you need to know what God requires of his people. This is far harder than perhaps you think. We are confronted with thousands of situations every week where the question being asked is what honors the Lord here. And it is not always as clear-cut as we would like it to be, and yet seven, twelve demands that we live a life of love that leads people so as to honor the Lord. You have to know this word, and you have to do the hard work of thinking through how it plays out in the circumstances that are before you. That is how you can start to treat people in the way that you want to be treated. Husbands, love your wives by leading them in the way of holiness. Wives, honor your husbands by encouraging them towards holiness. Parents, love your children. How? Not by giving them their every request. That's not loving. You love them by instilling in them fear of the Lord. The golden rule is so precious because it demands that we honor God's holy character. Third reason why the golden rule is valuable is because it leads us in Christ-centered obedience. It leads us in Christ-centered obedience. If you have ever considered chapter 7, verse 12 of Matthew's Gospel, I trust that to some measure you've esteemed it to be a difficult command. If you've really meditated upon what Jesus is asking here, thought it through, you've come away thinking this is not an easy teaching. Even so, it's harder than you think. As I said at the start, all other major religions have some form of this teaching inherent to them. That's true in a sense. Some examples, Buddhism, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucianism, what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. The Tamil tradition, do not do to others what you know has hurt yourself. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty, do not do to others what you what would, what would cause pain if done to you. And on and on the list goes. What makes Jesus' teaching unique? In part, it is because seemingly Jesus is the only teacher that gave this principle positively. All of the other examples express it negatively, which deals with what we might call sins of commission. Something you are doing Don't do it. Sins of commission. Jesus takes the principle, renders it positively, therefore now dealing certainly with sins of commission, but so also sins of omission. Sins that are targeted at what you're not doing. You're in sin because you didn't do something. He's exhorting you, as it were, to a very active lifestyle. His disciples are to be active in the world precisely because of this command. Go and do what you want others to do to you. 
This is an active command that is far, far greater than its negative counterpart. And the activeness to which he compels us is not limited. It is not limited in its quantity. Notice how Jesus begins, verse 12, Therefore, whatever, or literally, in all things. So truly considered, we are to ponder how we would want others to treat us in all areas of life. No exceptions. How do I want someone to love me on a Sunday at church? How do I want someone to love me in the workplace? How do I desire people to love me in my family, in my extended family? How do I desire people to love me in short, everyday interactions? I'll never see them again. How do I desire someone to love me in that circumstance? There is nothing that is off the table, Jesus says, in whatever. And nor is it limited in terms of its quality. It's not limited in its quantity. It speaks to every area of life. It is not limited in its quality. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also, or more literally, so even, in that manner. In the manner that you would like to be loved, in that manner, love others. I'll be honest, I do not want your half-hearted love. I want all the love you have to give. That's my desire. I want everything you have to give, and it is your desire too. You want people to love you in the way that they most possibly can. And Jesus says, in the same manner, go and love others. This is not often how we think about love. We often think about love in such a way that we say, either in thought or in our behavior, I will love when they love me. Or we think about love in such a way that in thought or behavior we say, I will love only when I am certain that love will come in return. That is not what the verse says. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, no guarantees, no assessment, no pre-assessment. Do I hold back my love or give it? Let me see if they're likely to return my love. That's not what Jesus says. And remember, in this sermon, Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a signal that he is giving to his disciples of the kind of life they can expect following him. Blessed are you, he says, looking them in the eyes, when others persecute you and revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You will be persecuted." That teaching stands when he says in verse 12, now go love. Don't hold back. Think about how you want people to love you everywhere and to the greatest extent. And in that way, now go and love. 
So if you thought this was hard, it's even harder than you think. How can we obey the commands of Christ? How can we obey this command? How can we take steps in the right direction, showing obedience that honors these words? As I've said week after week, there can be no consistent or genuine obedience to the commands of Christ without a daily, vibrant faith in the person of Christ. I want you to understand this. You cannot obey the commands of Christ consistently, nor with any integrity, if it is not issuing forth from a faith in Christ. It might be that you're here this morning and you see the inherent worth of the golden rule. You with everyone else on the planet says, this is a good rule by which to live my life. If you are not in Christ this morning, you can't obey it. Not with any consistency. There will come a time in your life where you are tested. The pressures of life will bear down on you and you will let go of all ethics that you have previously affirmed. Nor can you obey it with any integrity. On the surface, it might look like you are a good, law-abiding disciple and yet underneath you are two-faced. You cannot obey the commands of Christ with any consistency or integrity apart from a genuine, daily expressed faith in Christ. And so if you are here this morning as an observer of Christ, I remember reading some years ago a certain author who was very Christian, in the things he said. I read book after book after book, and I wanted to know where he stood with the Lord. And eventually I found out. Comment that was passed in one of his writings, he said, I am a listener of the Christian faith. Which is a very easy way to say I have denied the Lordship of Christ. He liked so much of what he saw, and yet he was not willing to submit to the king. If you are here this morning as an observer of Christ, you're on the mountain with the disciples. You like so much of what you see and hear, but you have not submitted your heart to Christ. You will never obey his commands. And I want to invite you this morning to move from observer to disciple. Let go of your sin that you love so dearly. Call it sin. Call it wickedness. And tell Christ that his blood is sufficient to cover it. And know that as you submit to him streams of living water, will issue up from within you sufficient for your obedience.
If you're a disciple, I want to labor the importance of a faith that is daily renewed. You trust Christ. You take him at his word. Renew your faith for him daily. Tell him you love him every day. Rehearse the gospel every day. It is the means of grace by which you will faithfully obey his teaching. That is how the golden rule leads us in Christ-centered obedience. Number four, and finally, what's so precious about the golden rule? The answer is it teaches us of a purpose that is greater than ourselves. It teaches us of a purpose gives us a vision that is greater than ourselves. Again, many others taught this principle if they did not word it exactly the same. The idea of it is found outside of the Bible. What makes Jesus' words unique in part, it is that he renders them in the positive, thereby dealing with sins of omission as well as commission. But also it's that last phrase, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For, Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. Certainly, as Jesus ends with the the phrase law and prophets, he is summarizing. He's summarizing the Old Testament law with this one principle. And again, many have recognized that. There is the famous story of a rabbi, A.D. 20, challenged a Gentile to summarize the whole law while standing on one foot. The Gentile took up the challenge, stood on one foot and said, the law is this, do not do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. This is the law, the rest, he said, is commentary. It is a a summative principle. We think of Jesus himself in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, when asked, what is the law? He summarizes, he says, the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. We read it this morning in Leviticus. It is an appropriate way to summarize the Old Testament law. The horizontal and the vertical. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And horizontally, you love your neighbor as yourself. But at the same time, it is not incidental that this phrase has already occurred within the context of this sermon. As we noted earlier this morning, back in 517, Jesus shows up on the scene. He preaches the Beatitudes. And then the next thing he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's significant that that phrase is showing up again here at the end of the sermon. And you'll remember, because I know that you do not forget a single thing I say. You'll remember... You will remember, back in 517, we talked about how when Jesus speaks of not abolishing the law and the prophets, but rather coming to fulfill them, his fulfilling invoked the notion of God's redemptive plan. 
He's not come to do away with everything that's been accomplished in redemptive history so far. Rather, he's come to perpetuate and to bring to completion that plan. So, in 517, what Jesus does is he pulls on all of Scripture. The law and the prophets is a way of referencing the whole of the Old Testament. And he says, that plan that you've seen being worked out, I have come to move forward and indeed to bring to completion. It's the plan that we see initiated in Genesis 3 when man transgresses, God responds in his grace and says, I'm going to send an individual to write this mess. I will send a redeemer, a king who will make this right again. And that plan moves forward through the law. Moses issues the law as God calls Israel out of Egypt. He shapes them into a nation and says, Here are my good and right commands by which you are to live and flourish in relationship with me. And then the plan moves forward in the prophets as they confront Israel and said, You haven't obeyed and therefore you must be punished. And then the plan moves forward as Jesus himself shows up lives perfectly, obeyed where Israel did not. Died on a cross, though having committed no sin, in order to pay for the sins of those who would trust him. Raised from the dead after three days, the tomb is empty, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That is the plan that Jesus is moving forward and will bring to completion. He invokes it at 5.17. He does the same again in 7.12. The difference is, in chapter 7, verse 12, the focus is on you. In 5.17, Jesus says, I haven't come to do any injury to that plan. I'm going to move it forward. In 7.12, he looks at his disciples and he invites them to play their part in the plan. If you're a disciple today, Jesus has given you the gift of salvation. You have a part to play in the plan. And Jesus is showing us that that plan is realized in our lives to the degree that we submit ourselves to this teaching. It is rightly a summary of all that he said so far. And understand, if you would humble yourself, ask God to show you properly what it is that you desire at a fundamental level as one who is created in the likeness of God and to truly, truly be diligent to love others in that way, how God will be magnified in your life. How greatly the gospel would be made manifest both in you and through you. What a powerful testimony you will have as you lay down your life in Christ's likeness and love others in the way that you desire to be loved. It will make manifest the love of God. It will make manifest the love of Christ. And it will minister to your own heart of a purpose that is far greater than your life. You see, in a sense, this text is very others-oriented. 
It asks us to examine our earthly relationships. At the same time, this text speaks directly to us. And if obeyed, it instructs our hearts in what it looks like to follow and to love and to imitate Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, we give you thanks again for Jesus' teaching. We treasure it. We love the words of Christ. We do want for our lives to reflect obedience to his commands. Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us what it is we truly desire. Not the desires that have come from sin. Not those wayward desires that don't honor you. The desires that sit at the core of our being and flow out from the truth that we were made according to your likeness. Those desires teach us what they are. And then, Father, lead us in the life of love. May we be faithful to love others in that way, in all areas of our lives, without limitation. Renew our love and our faith in Christ daily. Give us the grace that we need to obey. Teach us of this purpose that far transcends our lives, of the great redemptive plan that you've invited us to partake of, making manifest the gospel as we love others as we would be loved. Father, we give ourselves to you this morning and ask that you would have your way in our hearts. We pray as ever in Jesus' name. Amen.